Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Danielle. I'm Paul-Emile. And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. I hope everyone had a happy Halloween. Despite the fact that I stayed in what might have been a haunted room on Halloween night, I did not have any ghostly encounters, though I did see some pretty cute trick-or-treaters. Did you get any at all? We didn't get nobody. So you ended up with all the candy? Yeah. So we're back tonight with our regular episode, and the case that we're covering has been suggested by a few listeners. Tonight we'll be talking about the disappearance of Charles Horvath Allen. Now, before we get into the case, I just want to mention this is a cold case that's 30 years old and still has a lot of unknowns in it. I'll discuss what information I was able to find out there, but there are some questionable things in the timeline. I also want to mention that while I was reading and watching different sources about this case, all I kept thinking was, Someone out there knows something. Someone holds the answer and they're just not talking. So if you get that feeling while we're going through this case, you're not the only one. So 30 years is not that long ago. No. No, it's it's a cold case. It's It's well past the time it should have been solved, right? We don't want any of these things to go 30 years without the family and the friends having any kind of answer. But people out there are still alive that know things. That's right. That's what I meant by 30 years not being that long ago. Yeah. So Charles Horvath Allen was born in Canada, but he was a British national. Um, I read somewhere that he actually had dual citizenship with the UK and Canada. When he was 20 years old, he came to Canada to visit his father and his godfather who lived in Ontario. But also, he was planning to hitchhike across the country and have an adventure. He was going to hitchhike from Quebec to BC, according to a 2020 CBC article. So the first thing that comes to my mind with that is uh, somebody coming to Canada for the first time and not realizing how far he was planning on traveling. I think he did spend a fair amount of time in Canada. His father was Canadian, I believe. His mother was uh, British, but... I'm not sure exactly if he knew the exact distance, but I think he was aware of how much ground there was to travel. Now, my big question with that is how mainstream was hitchhiking in 1989? Well, I guess you're probably a little too young to think about hitchhiking in 1989, but it was not uncommon. Yeah. I did zero hitchhiking in my life, especially not in 1989, but like I know people that are probably 10 to 20 years older than me that like would hitchhike home from work regularly because it wasn't anything they thought twice about. I know when I was a teenager, hitchhiking was very common. A lot of people did it. And being from a small town, a lot of people knew each other, so it was not quite as dangerous. 
although I had one bad experience, but uh, I think it was still fairly common in 89. Yeah, I, I think hitchhiking as we got into the 2000s became a lot more, maybe not taboo, but not recommended because the dangers were becoming more known. We know that on May 3rd, 1989, Charles had made it to Kelowna. We know he'd been staying with people he met, staying at a local hostel, and at a campground called Tiny Tent Town. So in May, the weather would have been hit and miss because you can still get some pretty nasty weather sometimes in May. Yeah, making his way across the country must have been a really interesting journey. Once he got to BC, May was probably not too bad, but um, they don't talk about how the trip was going across, but I know Ontario and the prairies during March, April mustn't have been nice weather. Yeah, and going around the Great Lakes and that, you know, you could have 20 degrees one day and a snowstorm the next. Yeah. Charles and his mother, Denise, were planning on meeting up in Hong Kong to celebrate their both their birthdays, according to the website Unsolved Mysteries Fandom. The last communication that his mother had received was from a fax that he sent on May 11th, 1989, regarding the trip. That's dating things, a fax. I know, but I was thinking about it, and it's probably the quickest way you could have communicated with someone back then. Oh, sure. Have you ever sent the fax? Yeah, we still send fax at work, at work oh, all the okay. time. Oh, is that right? I didn't realize people even were using that. Uh, I think for office work, it still happens, but for personal use, not so much. But yeah, in 89, other than like catching the person when they were home and you were calling them, which would have been quite expensive overseas back then, um, I guess faxing was probably the easiest way. Well, it was the, the, the email of the time, really. That's true. So the fax was sent on May 11th, 1989, and they were supposed to keep in touch and finalize arrangements so his mom could get him a plane ticket so they could meet up in Hong Kong. In the middle of May 1989, I, I couldn't find a specific date on that, Charles registered at Tiny Tent Town, and another person living there says that they actually helped him put up his tent. There's actually a 1994 segment of Unsolved Mysteries about this case, and they talk about various people who stayed in the tent town, who all say that Charles was a really nice, really friendly guy, but they also described him as maybe a little bit too trusting, like maybe a bit naive. And also, while we're talking about that, everyone described that area of town in that particular place as being quite rough. And if we think about it, I like if I think about a campground, I'm not thinking about people that are there in the middle of May. No, it seems to be off season. So I'm wondering if it was like a lot of people were actually living there, maybe. Um, I guess if you do have RVs and stuff like that, it's possible. But I, I think people were also living there in tents, maybe not year round. But according to the site, Vancouver is awesome. The last time Charles was officially seen was May 26, 1989. I thought I'd read somewhere that he was caught on video, but I couldn't find that again. We do know that he was seen cashing a check at a royal bank, and this was the last official sighting of Charles. Right, and uh, video cameras wouldn't have been that common either at that time. Maybe a bank would have had them and... 
Yeah, I'm wondering if I just assumed that when they said they, they saw him at the bank because I couldn't find the information anywhere else. So it might just have been sort of a leap that my brain took. Although I remember in the mid to late 70s working at a, a, a parts store and they had cameras uh, in certain areas of the store back then, closed circuit. It wasn't anything like the pictures we have today, but th there were some back then. Charles was officially reported missing on August 10, 1989, after he had failed to contact his mother. So almost three months. Yeah. When you think about it, I don't know what their official date of travel was supposed to be. I don't know the whole story. I know she was waiting and waiting to hear from him. But you're so far away, like you have no way of reaching out. And I can't even imagine how scared and like lonely that would have felt, like how helpless she would have felt knowing that something was going on and like that feeling becoming bigger and bigger and being sort of unable to do anything. And there was no social media, anything, any contact she had to make at, make at that time was by telephone calls and even trying to track down somebody in the area where he went missing would be difficult, going through phone books and... Uh, Exactly. And I mean, he was at one spot at that tent town, but like he, she probably knew he was moving from place to place. So who knows where you call next, right? That's right. And the other thing I was thinking of, like even I did some backpacking through Europe in the 2006, 2007, I think it was. But I did some backpacking through Europe and the only time I could get in touch with family or friends was when I was staying at a hostel that also happened to have free internet. So I gave my itinerary to you guys and I gave my itinerary to a few other people, but it ended up changing like day two. And sometimes we'd stay in places that they didn't have a computer with internet, so we couldn't even send an email. So it could go a couple days between contact. So even in this case, I can imagine like days and weeks passing and thinking like, oh, maybe he's just not able to get in touch. But then all of a sudden it's months and they have this trip planned and there's still no, no communication. But just think of even right now today, if you happen to be in an area where you don't have an internet connection, how lost we all are. Denise made it over to Canada in 1990 to look for her missing son. It seems like the police were not taking the case of a missing hitchhiking adult too seriously. And we often hear that line that adults are allowed to disappear and they're allowed not to be in contact with family. It's not necessarily foul play. They can make those decisions if they choose to. Denise plastered the town with missing persons posters and was contacted eventually by Joanne Zebroff. Joanne tells Denise that she had met Charles in the spring of 1989 and that he had actually stayed at her place on several occasions, according to the Unsolved Mysteries episode. She says that the last time she'd heard from him was probably around mid-May, when he dropped by her apartment. According to Joanne, and I believe she lived with her mother, they hadn't let him into the building because they had company over. So he buzzed the apartment and they talked through the intercom and she explained that they had company over and he couldn't come up. And apparently he was a little bit, insistence not the right word because it didn't seem like it was 
um, forceful or anything, but like he did question like, oh, but it's Charles. Why don't you let me up? Like I'm a friend. And they just said, sorry, like it's not a good night. Come back at another time. But if he had stayed there, it seems like an odd reaction, just the same. If you had somebody that had stayed with you that would show up at the door, even if he had company, when you at least want to talk to him and at least check out and see what's going on. To be honest, I didn't have that in my notes, but I thought that as well. Like they didn't even let him up. I think they mentioned that like the brother was over for supper. So I kind of, I don't know, I can see it happening. Personally, I would probably have let the person in, but I don't know what was going on. Like maybe they were having a serious family conversation. Maybe it was an intervention. Like we don't know what was going on. So it could have been something rather serious. So according to Joanne, this was in mid-May when he dropped by the apartment. But later, she changed the time where she saw him and said that it had actually... And now I'm not sure if she said it or the police decided that she was misremembering, but the police then later would change it saying that that had actually happened in July, which would have been months after the last sighting and the last contact. There's a big difference between May and July. Right. So Joanne, in 1990, when the mother's visiting, originally tells her it was mid-May, which kind of fits with the timeline. But then after the police do some investigating and all that, they say, oh, no, that was actually wrong. It was actually July that she saw him. I didn't find anything or see anything where Joanne is actually saying, no, I was wrong. It was July. So I don't know. Like This is just one of those things that's really murky to me. So part of me almost feels like maybe they kind of pushed for her to like rethink that they date. Is it possible it was later kind of thing? Um, I don't want to necessarily think it was nefarious, but I think they were maybe trying to make the facts fit their theory a little bit. That maybe trying to find some reasoning behind the fact that if he was missing since May and they didn't start looking for him until July... Yeah. Trying to make the timeline. Or explain why they hadn't done anything, yeah. So, somewhat reluctantly, because of how rough the neighborhood was, Denise went to the tent town campground where Charles had last been staying and found out that he had actually left all of his possessions behind. So he'd been traveling, like, with a tent, sleeping bag, things like that, but also, like, pictures of his mother and his family and all of those things. Everything had been left behind. But because so much time had gone by, most of the belongings had been taken or stolen by residents of the campground. But the manager actually had a few of the belongings. So he had like a a rosary, a strap from a boot, which just baffles me as to why he would have kept that. And also a small Bible, which were all possessions of Charles. Denise went to the police with these things. She says that at that time, the RCMP informed her that they believed her son to be deceased. But on the Unsolved Mysteries episode, the official RCMP spokesperson doesn't deny that that was said, but he says that it wouldn't have been the official stance of the RCMP and probably just the opinion of the officer she spoke to, because in their opinion, he was just listed as a missing person. In 1992, Denise returned to Canada again to keep searching for her son. During this time, she actually receives a letter while she's staying at a hotel. It's delivered by a cab. 
As far as I know, they couldn't trace who had given that cab driver a letter. The letter stated that Charles had gotten into a fight one night at Tiny Tent Town during a raging party and had been punched in the head and died. The letter went on to say that his body was dumped in Lake Okanagan, which is one of the deepest lakes in the world. So volunteer divers immediately sprung into action and started searching the lake. Shortly after they began searching, Denise actually received a second letter saying that they were searching on the wrong side of the lake. So whoever had sent that letter was obviously keeping an eye out on what was going on. Yes, he was watching. Yeah. A few days into the search, they actually found a body and the RCMP was called in. After a lot of confusion because the papers ran that they had found Charles's body, it was not Charles. So it was found out that it was the body of a man, um, I believe he was in his 60s, and he died of suicide about a couple of years prior to his body being found. So as far as I could see, the search kind of ended with that. I think we all know that bodies of water can hide things for a really long time. And you can be just a few feet away from something and never know that it's there. And even with the divers, if the water's that deep, uh, they're not able to see that well. They're using lights. And you could, you know, go by a body that's covered with some silt and just not see it. I didn't check how big a lake it was, but I'm assuming if it's that deep, it's pretty big. It must be a big lake because isn't that the lake where there's supposed to be some sort of a sea creature in it? It could be, yeah. So it must be a fairly large body of water. On the Unsolved Mysteries episode, um, they talked to another resident of the tent town who was friendly with Charles. I think their tents were close together and Charles would come over and play with his son while he was living there. And he actually corroborates some of the information in the letter. He says that the last night he saw Charles, there had been a really big kind of raging all-night party, and that the next day, all of Charles' possessions were still there, but they never saw him again after that. Though it doesn't necessarily say that there was a witness to the event, um, it does sound like some of the facts that are stated in the letter are true. So tiny tent city doesn't sound like a very safe place, and there's quite a mixture of characters living there. Some guy with his son living in a tent. That's why I think some people might have been residents there. I mean, camping out in a tent in May. I mean, I, I, I'm not 100% sure what the temperature in BC is around that time of year, but I know for the parts of Canada I've lived in, it can, you know, it can be super nice one day, and like you said, it can be snowing the next, so... The police ultimately dismissed the letters received by Charles' mother as a hoax. They state that Charles was seen after May 26. Now, this is statements that were made in 1994. Let's keep that in mind. So they say that they believe Charles was seen after May 26, so that would have been when Joanne said he stopped by the apartment, which they thought was July, and somebody else says that they saw him in, at a nightclub at a later date. They also say that they spoke to some of Charles' family members and he had said that he had intended to cut himself off intentionally from his mother and disappearing so she wouldn't know where he was. There have been no confirmed sightings of Charles since May 1989. Because even when you think of it, 
the contact that Joanne had with him, whether or not it was July, it was not a sighting. She just talked to him through an intercom. Yeah, she had no way of even being certain that it was him. Exactly. And part of me even thinks, was that person that she knew as Charles, the actual Charles, you know what I mean? Could it could it be another Charles? Did she know his full name? Like she just met him, I think, sort of randomly. So it's hard to say. Charles' mother has made countless trips to Canada in search of her son. She has asked and pleaded for help. Her son was eventually declared dead in Canada, and she also applied for a presumption of death in the UK. Recently, she's received some help from an organization called Locate International, and they stepped in to try and help in the effort to find out, either to find Charles or find out what happened to Charles. According to a CBC article, Denise says that this is uplifting, uh, receiving some help is a great relief, and she really just wants answers as to what happened to her son. According to a Vernon Morning Star article, there are six areas that the RCMP had promised to look into. They asked Denise to stop conducting her own investigation. This article was from 2018, and it states that they had actually promised to look into these areas six years prior. I didn't find any information whether or not they had looked into it. Obviously, if they did, they didn't find anything because there's really no information or further clues out there. At the time of his disappearance, Charles was 6 feet tall and weighed 165 pounds. He had dark brown hair and eyes. He would be 52 years old today. There are some age progression pictures of Charles that exist, and I don't often put pictures up on social media because I don't want it to be triggering to family or friends if they happen upon them, but I do think it it's one of those cases where it might actually be helpful to trigger someone's memory in this case. So I'll be putting those up on the Facebook group and on Instagram. Anyone with information on Charles' disappearance is asked to call Sergeant Paul Gosling of the Kelowna Serious Crime Unit at 250-762-3300, or you can leave a tip with Crime Stoppers if you wish to remain anonymous. Did you have any thoughts on that case? Well, there's a few things that come to mind. First of all, Tent City is a sketchy place. And um, the case being 30 years old, there's still people uh, probably living in the area that were involved with Tent City back then that may know something. Um, the lady that apparently had contact with him through the intercom, um, I find that a little bit sketchy. It's May, it's July, it's, yeah. you know, that's sketchy. And the other thing, too, is if... The follow-up on the two letters, if his body was dumped in the lake, it'd be interesting for them to do some sort of scanning with today's technology in the lake to see if they could actually find another body in there and, and get some closure for his mother because it's a long time. And I'm sure the lady's getting a bit up in age and would like to have some information as to what actually went down and have some closure. And she's in her early 70s now, I believe. And it seems like she's dedicated her life to trying and find her son. And there was an article at one point where she says, like, this would be her last trip to Canada because she just couldn't anymore, which is completely understandable. I think she even sold her business in the UK to fund her trips and fund her search. Um, she ended up coming back 
after and she said you know I spoke to people who gave me maybe not hope but gave her like the energy to still move forward and keep looking and I think this organization getting involved as well which has only happened in 2020 so I don't even think they've been able to start looking the way they normally would because of COVID and limitations and restrictions so I think this has given her some you know not renewed hope but maybe renewed hope for an answer to come yes and I think the fact that after 30 years she may have found people that are just as passionate as she is into getting answers so it kind of lit that candle for her again for sure and I mean if the police dismiss that letter as a hoax they might have information that we don't have that leads them to do that I think at this point saying that he disappeared of his own will is I don't think it's the line that they're taking anymore obviously they've declared him legally dead but yeah I I think at this point just any answer that the family could get I mean I think he's lost I believe his father and his grandmother have since passed without knowing what happened to him. So, I mean, his mother is still actively looking for answers, so hopefully she can get some. Well, that's the sad thing in all of these cases, are there people that have wondered what happened to their loved ones and pass on without knowing the answer, and it just seems to make it that much sadder, and probably makes his mother that more determined to try and get an answer before she passes on. For sure, yeah. You can rest a little bit easier if you know. So we're going to finish up tonight with a moment of kindness. A coworker of mine shared a story that I'm going to share on the podcast tonight. My coworker was biking along a path when they got a flat tire. They weren't super far on the path, just a couple kilometers away from the parking lot. So it would have been a bit of a trek, but not the end of the world. And that person has only started cycling, so she doesn't have like the kit to fix a tube in a tire and probably not the knowledge of how to fix it and nor do I so I don't blame her or shame her for that another cyclist came by and saw that she was having an issue and I mean she is she was like I'm just a couple kilometers away it's fine I'll just walk my bike back but they insisted that they were going to help patch her tire and kind of explain the process how it was done so that next time if it happens she can get a kit she can do it herself so um, she was telling me about it and I thought it'd be a nice story to share tonight because it's just again someone going kind of above and beyond the call of duty yeah and in these trying times the simple things seem to be all that more important for sure so thank you to everyone who's been listening Uh, We currently have 15 reviews on iTunes, and thank you to everyone who's left a review, but it'd be great if we could hit 20 by 2021. So if you're able to take a moment and leave a review, I would really appreciate it. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. We're under Crime and Mystery Canada, or you can reach us by email at crimeandmysterycanada at gmail.com. I hope everyone is staying safe out there. Have a good night. Good night.